is changing fast and the issues are becoming increasingly complex from global warming to social change. All of these issues ask us to dig deep. Each of us has the capacity to adapt, creatively adapt to changing outside conditions, but we really haven't tapped into that much. And of course, the aggression is a sign that we're failing to do so. My name is Donna Jones. This is the Insight to Action podcast. This is the place where you'll gain insights and inspiration from innovative thinkers and doers in business who hold a higher vision for humanity. If you're interested in co-creating the future moment by moment, this is the program where you'll meet people like you so we can collectively restore the health of workplaces and society along with the ecological support systems that everyone needs for life. So being a futurist calls for a particular kind of capacity to see way ahead because there's absolutely nothing predictable about today's world. Liz Alexander is a futurist whose article on Fast Company got me thinking because it was about robotics. If you mention the word robotics, people start talking about how many jobs will be lost and the sky is falling and it will be added to the longer list of doom and gloom of today which, you know, is not that useful. So let's just step back and and learn from Liz on what's involved in being a futurist and, and so forth. So Liz, how did you become a futurist and what exactly do you do? Well, thank you, Donna. Um, well, I'm one of those kind of weird people, a kind of millennial in a boomer's body. Um, I like to reinvent myself every two or three years. So I was kind of coming up to, to that point of, oh, now what do I, you know, now what do I do or what? else do I add on? And um, I've always kept in being a journalist. I've been a journalist for many, many years. And I was writing an article or asked to write an article about a um, the book that a UK futurist called Patricia Lustig had written. Uh, it's called Strategic Foresight, Learning from the Future. And as I'm interviewing Patricia as to what strategic foresight is all about, I suddenly realized, hey, you know, this is what I actually do with my clients. Because what I found out from speaking with Patricia is that, you know, a futurist really can do several things. But the two main things are, you know, somebody specializing in foresight or forward thinking, you know, around trends for specific topics, and then being able to translate that into valuable business intelligence. And I'm thinking, well, I do that in my consulting work. And and then the second piece is that kind of, you know, having a fascination and wanting to make a contribution to help people think differently so that not only can they discover insights for themselves, but they can find ways to apply those practically. Um, and again, the thinking differently is very much something I do with the book clients that I work with. So I thought, well, this is cool. You know, I've been doing this all this time and I didn't know there was actual name or a term you could attach to it. Um, so I think really, you know, in a nutshell, futurists are kind of what you call the blue sky thinkers. They're the ones that if they're going to be working for an organization or something will provide some significant competitive advantage to those organizations so that they can stay ahead of the field or their industry and actually shape and influence 
the present as it leads to the future they want. You know, otherwise, what's going to happen? The future hits you around the face. You weren't expecting it. You get completely blindsided and then you're just forever playing catch up. Yeah, super true. Uh, absolutely true. I, I know I know myself, I look back at some things I read in 2004 and my own work, actually, starting back in 2004. And we, we are there today. And if companies would have, have um, had their heads up around those things, they, they could have, uh, they, they'd be in much better positions than they are now. So. Absolutely. And I mean, one of, the, one of the companies that does this incredibly well, interestingly enough, is Amazon. I mean, when I was reading my friend Joel Barker's book, he writes about paradigm thinking and, and what have you, and about purposely seeking out new ways of doing things. One of the questions that he puts, he says, are very useful for people to ask themselves is, you know, what do I believe is impossible to do, which, if it could be achieved, would fundamentally change my business? And then just the other day, I was reading about Amazon and how they create these kind of future press releases. They kind of make stuff up, you know, something that they would like to be able to do, but perhaps is technologically impossible right now. They write the press release for it and then they figure out, well, what would people want to know about this or what would be the questions, you know, that we would get asked? And then they develop the projects around that. So I thought that was a brilliant example of an organization actually, lever you know, not just leveraging the future, but actually shaping and creating the future that they want. Yeah, there's a phrase that goes dream, dream things into being, and it sounds like that's what they're doing. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. Now, I mentioned robotics in my intro uh, for, for our conversation today, and of course, one of the, the topics is this whole business of, of robots taking over our jobs. What can you tell us about that? Is it a realistic fear that people have when they hear the word robots and taking my job and all that kind of stuff? Or is it something else? It is at the moment, the something else. So for example, the last Fast Company article that I wrote looked at three different jobs. I looked at HR manager, librarian, and retail salesperson. Now, if you go to any of the, you know, the sort of um, scare tactics articles, then you'll see that the HR manager should be relatively safe. The librarian, 50-50, eh, but the retail salesperson would be at greatest risk. So, you know, I thought, well, come on, let's, let's delve into this a little bit more and find out if, you know, that's actually going to be the reality. And McKinsey... Uh, Global had done some very interesting research that says it's less likely that entire jobs will go unless you do the kind of very routinized uh, job that, you know, an algorithm could be written for. Uh, you know, those kind of jobs probably will be automated out of existence. But for the rest of us, it's more likely to be tasks or activities. So, in fact, when I looked at, you know, these questions of these three uh, different kinds of jobs in a more sort of strategic, deep way, I found that the outcome was very, very different from that doom and gloom. I mean, the jobs will change, but they won't go away. I mean, the HR person they're going to have to really up their game and, you know, understand about data analytics and all that kind of stuff. But here's the interesting thing. Even now, librarians are shifting to become research mentors. So they're able to do things like support and advise, especially school children, because so many people get sort of 
information overload. You know what I mean? I mean, there's so much information out there, but it's like, what, how do I find it and what do I do with it? So I was just in my local library the other day and, and they're, they've got these wonderful machines now where you can just scan the barcode and check it out yourself. And I'm thinking, yeah, great. Get rid of the, you know, the automatic robotic tasks that librarians do and let them do much more interesting jobs. Uh, and then the salespeople too, you know, as as um, bricks and mortar stores are recognizing that to compete with online, they're going to have to be much more sort of uh, less transactional and more experiential. You know, it's like a you know hyped up Apple store, um, and and much more multi sensory. Again, that will change the jobs that salespeople will be asked to do. So in the short term, even in the medium term, I think it's going to be certain activities that will be automated, but I don't think jobs are going to go away in anything like the, the, the terms that we often hear. It's funny because when, when I first listened to the robotic thing, I had exactly that thought in mind was just, just that it makes so much sense to get rid of the mundane stuff that, because there's so much depth of intelligence that humans have that they never access because they're not called upon to do so. And now we can really go deeper and, and release um, much more uh, acts wider wider sets of intelligences. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember this great quote by the CEO of global firm Arup. Uh, they've got a dedicated foresight team within their business, and he always says the future is oversold and underimagined. Um, you know, and the problem is that the media very often. I mean, you know, it's so much more exciting, isn't it, to have a headline? You know, um, you know. 50% of jobs are all going to disappear. Uh, you know, that, that sort of chicken little sky falling in kind of thing. For them, that makes much more interesting, exciting headlines than, you know, the actual sort of truth of it. So sometimes you do have to scratch the surface and, uh, and look a little deeper. And, you know, media love fear, so it makes sense. Now, let's look at, at something like uh, the, the role, the profession of a nurse, for example, because nurses have used data to make their decisions, but they're also uh, really skilled. I mean, the good ones use their intuition because if they, if they don't, then bigger mistakes happen. So they're looking for those anomalies in the patterns that tell them something else. What, what, do we, what can you tell us about what, how, safety, you know, how safe their jobs are, but, but just what role robotics and machines will have in relationship to what they need to be doing as, as intuitive uh, humans? Yeah, absolutely, Donna. Well, again, looking at the research, and this is largely coming from McKinsey Global again, you know, it's not just about the technical potential for automating. You know, even if you can automate, even if robots could do these jobs, it doesn't necessarily mean that we want them to. And, and nursing is a particularly good example, and I'll tell you for why. You know, the predictable physical work, well, yes, you could say there's a technical potential for automating that. And that might not be a bad idea, because I'm sure there are a lot of nurses being asked to do things that, you know, they end up with bad backs or, you know, some other sort of chronic condition. As you just pointed out, you know, things like data processing and collection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, give that to the machines. The interpersonal interaction, though, and, and anything to do with, you know, managing others or applying expertise are much less likely to be automated. And, you know, one of the things that I always like to say is, Apart from the fact that it's not just about technological feasibility, 
you know, and whether we have machines that are competent to do all the different tasks that humans do. You know, think about all the different things that we are able to do in the course of a, an average day. You know, I mean, the things that maybe nurses are required to do, you know, make someone a cup of tea, hold their hand, empathize, sympathize, comfort someone in pain, maybe tell a pet personal story, you know what I mean, to make them feel better or make them laugh, you know, mop a fevered brow, disagree with the doctor <laughs> when you feel that, you know, he hasn't really got a handle on something, you know, change a catheter handle a bedpan so that the person using it retains some dignity. And, you know, Japan is one of those countries that is kind of ahead of the game when it comes to robotics, mainly because they have a declining workforce. So they're needing to use robots to kind of supplement the, the lack of people that they've got. And so I was very interested to, to find out, although they have been looking to um, have robots involved in elder care, for example, that the biggest robot maker in Japan for domestic purposes struggled to find <laughs> clients who are actually interested uh, interested in buying their their robots, according to a BBC report, and that these robot guides were being removed from hospitals because the patients didn't like them. You know, they were saying, we want humans caring for us, not machines. That said, I'm sure they'd be quite happy to replace a doctor that has a terrible bedside manner with the machine. It's <laughs> probably not a discernible difference between the two. Well, you know, actually, they're beginning to say for diagnostic purposes, actually, that, you know, especially with artificial intelligence, the machines are doing a darn sight better job at identifying, uh, you know, many issues than, than human beings who, you know, get tired or, you know, don't pay enough attention or, or whatever it might be. But, you know, there are these issues about, especially for something like nursing, you know, social acceptance is important. Regulatory issues. I mean, have we come to terms with those? And then, you know, something like the expense. I mean, I think we pay our nurses and our teachers and all these people far too little. Um, but in Japan, they, they, they couldn't sell a spoon feeding robot arm because it was costing something like $5,000. So, you know, why would you do that when you can get a human being to do it? Well, or that, and, and, and then you look at what's been done in Africa with 3D printing and robotics. They've been using, um, you know, printing the 3D prosthetics that allow kids with their arms blown off from this pointless wars to be able to eat again but it's it's 3d printed i think i think a limb is a thousand bucks now so versus what what it used to be so so there's other innovations that are now stepping in and overlapping i think with some of these um trajectories yes totally I, as far as i'm concerned we've never been at a more exciting point in our evolution as a species we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us there are some very huge opportunities for, for people to play in, in humanity, business, different roles, and so forth. And yet most people have their focus on what's what to worry about and what's wrong with the, the, the institution, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. For you as a futurist, I mean, outside of the fact this compromises um, potential a lot by, by distracting focus, where do you see the greatest focus being placed? It's all over the place at the moment. When I speak with my fellow futurists and look online at some of the conversations that are taking place, you know, sometimes it's very specific, like water. 
lack of it. I mean, I live in Austin, Texas. We've had a drought for a number of years. Luckily, this year we've had a lot more water and the lakes are being replenished. But, you know, it's also a city in which we're seeing a huge intake and a, you know, upsurge in population. That's something that you know, we're really going to need to focus on. And in some other countries, you know, the quality of the water and, you know, who is controlling it is a big issue. You know, the usual things like terrorism, uh, climate change, economic inequality. You know, what I would like to say is the event at the moment that seems to bring so much into focus, I think, and as a good way to look at both our fear of change and our desire for change is that is the US presidential election. I mean, it, it seems to me that we've got either the choice between business as usual or a bridge too far. And, and I think, you know, what we're all looking for, really, when it comes to change and what we want the future to be is more of a middle way. You know, we recognize that things need to change, but we don't want to be tearing everything down that we know and understand. And, and, and one of the biggest focuses for, for me, uh, in addition to the future of work, is the future of education, because that speaks specifically to are we preparing our young people for tomorrow's world of work or gig economy or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, there's definitely a time for a paradigm shift. And I do see a lot of interest and thankfully some action uh, being taken. You know, the ACD, ACT Foundation, their Center for Working and Learning, saying, you know, why do we separate, although, you know, some people can't afford to separate working and learning? Why don't we, if someone's learning a language, you know, get them to translate some text for which they get paid? Um, so, you know, that's that's why one sort of new way of looking things and you know there's various others but um yeah there's I mean really there's so much to be we've never I don't know whether we've ever lived in a time in which so much change is both needed and is coming hurtling towards us um but again there's that fear of you know are we going to get the change we actually want well, exactly. I mean, we're really talking about designing the future and today's decisions, and, and it's moment to moment because things are moving exceptionally quickly. So, so while we'd like to say, well, let's do some medium-level change, what, we, what we're involved in is radical, and there's no question that there will be even more massive disruptions, whether they come from the planet itself, which is, have, you know, its resilience has been compromised through human activity, or, or whether it comes through technological innovations, where we've long looked to the to tech to to save us, you know, from our own from ourselves. Basically, there's a percentage of business that sticks to the same old, same old, doing business like we've always done, same as you know in the industrial era. They move through several eras, but the attitudes and the mindsets haven't really changed significantly. Future's uncertain. It's unpredictable. There's nothing that throws off. Uh, traditional decision makers more than not knowing what's going to happen next or not being able to control outcomes. How would you suggest companies work with the unknown in a much more intelligent way? Well, let, let me let me try this with you, Donna. I'm, I'm going to read out a number of concerns, if you like, uh, that I'm reading in a book at the moment, and I want you to tell me you know, what year you think this book was written. So here are some of the concerns. Terrorism as an everyday activity, issues around energy, loss of respect for major institutions, 
information as a, a key resource. Uh, the loss of a college degree is a guarantee of a good job and, uh, you know, data exchange, information exchange and privacy issues. Now, if those issues were listed in a book, this book that I'm reading, what sort of date would you, what kind of publishing date would you think it had? Well, you typically think that would have been written in the last five years. I've got a feeling it was written at least 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's actually in Joel Barker's wonderful book, Discovering the Future, the Business of Paradigms. And, and the reason I like to mention that his book was written in 1985. The reason I like to mention that is, you know, we need to remember that the future has a foot in the past and the present. You know, there are always wild cards, of course. You know, radical, disruptive change. Although I do believe that, you know, somebody, even when you think about the big short, you know, that, that uh, movie uh, about, you know, what went on uh, in 2008, 2009, you know, somebody somewhere knows something. But generally, aside from those, we can always trace what is happening now and what is likely to happen in the future back to what's happened in the past. I'll just give you a prime example. I've been watching, I got these uh, series of DVDs from the library called Science Fiction Theatre. It was actually a TV series from the mid-1950s. And one of the, 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 one of the, uh, the programs was called Time is Just a Place. And it was about these visitors from the future. And, uh, and you know, one of them was using this co thing called the sonic boom, or the sonic broom, rather. And, and when I looked at it, I thought, oh, my gosh, that's my iRobot Roomba. I mean, it was almost identical to the little robot that I have that vacuums my floors. So it just goes to show you that, you know, so much of what we're experiencing now was being envisioned in the past. So going speaking to specifically to your question, how do you work with the unknown and intelligent way? I would say you have to get a better handle on history, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? You have to be willing to dig out, get somebody to do that for you if you're not willing to do it yourself, but to research where, you know, where the trends have come from and how they're likely to develop. Because so many of these ideas were just waiting for the right technological innovations to really take hold. And once they do, it's, you know, things really accelerate. So, you know, get a better handle on history. Stop thinking that things just come out of nowhere because they don't in the main. There's always, you know, there's always a footprint. And, and also look broader for, for that information. Uh, it's remarkable to me how often people are surprised by things that are happening that have had, you know, a, a sort of a, a historical, um, yeah, historical footprint, or they could have found by reading more broadly around different subjects and not just fixating on what's coming out of their own organization. I appreciate that. I, I think there's two things that strikes me about that. One is that, that in the past, when I was doing a lot of strategic work inside companies, we were always looking at um, extrapolating from the past to predict the future. I think we, we can't do that right now because uh, things are moving at uh, a curve that is beyond hockey stick version variety. So I think we're also looking at more of an intuitive sense of the future. You know, how can we just stretch it out? Nostradamus, I think, in 1269 predicted things that happened centuries 
after his predictions. And I think that takes, it goes back to something you said earlier about we need to reimagine things as well. So I think this is where companies that, that have the imaginative creative edge can, can step in and, and really reimagine themselves as well. Does that uh, make sense at all? Yes, that makes total sense. In fact, it's very consistent with the message that, that comes out of uh, Joel Barker's work, you know, as I said, the, the, the long-standing work that he's done on paradigms, because he says what we think of as impossible today is impossible only in the context of present paradigms. And the problem is that very often organizations will get so fixed on these self-constructed rules that they've put in place in order to be efficient, in order to be effective, that that very often stymies them when it when they need to be much more innovative and think, you know, in a much more creative way. So it, it's terrific to have these rules and processes or paradigms in place to help us make sense of and control our environment. We just have to be sure that we're we're blending that or we've got the you know the, the the contrary in place as well that says you know maybe those rules are outdated now they're not actually helping us solve as many problems as they did in the past we need to really rethink everything yeah that's really the capacity to to reflectively learn and uh, which some companies just don't take the time to do they're too busy running forward or, or or at least running on a treadmill and not really going anywhere but they're running so so it's that reflection that gives you the insight I think very much so. Uh, decision makers who are working in both complexity and uncertainty are, particularly if they've relied on past tools, are at a bit of a loss to how to work, how to how to make more accurate decisions. What advice would you give to them, to executives, decision makers who need to work with uncertainty, but they need to benefit from it as well, and and actually bypass the fight, flight, fear, freeze <laughs> temptation that the uh, survival brain would would prefer we did, but actually want to flow with it instead. Well, I think there's, there's two things that I would say because there's never, you know, a cookie cutter thing. There's never one size fits all because, you know, we're all unique and we're all different. So let me offer you two sort of slightly polarized uh, approaches to that. And, and the first one is I have a sign in my office that says when things are uncertain, anything is possible. So again, it's shifting the attitude to say, look, you know, why is uncertainty got to be a bad thing? You know, why don't we look at uncertainty as being fantastic? Hey, you know, it freezes up to do, to shape that future, to create a new future. Now, that's great if you have in place those curious, adventurous, somewhat confident individuals who will take, you know, take that perspective. But that's one way of actually looking at uncertainty, away, shifting away from it's always got to be negative. But then the other way that, you know, they might be able to sort of shift the attitude and some practical advice is, is to reframe it again and become more aware of things that are called cognitive biases. You know, these are these mental blind spots that we often have that stop us from kind of moving forward in the way that we might, you know, to actively seek out alternative points of view. 
And, and that means overcoming a bias called confirmation bias, because unfortunately, in the main, many people only look for evidence that supports their existing beliefs and they'll discount anything that doesn't. So again, you know, even if you're not going to look upon uncertainty as a wonderful, exciting, you know, adventurous thing, then at least say to yourself, okay, of the things I fear, of the things that worry me, you know, who is saying something that is maybe coming out of left field and sounds really fantastical to me, but if I were to look more deeply at it, might make some sense. And again, you know, rather than making a judgment, oh, that's absolute nonsense, to to actually possibly embrace that. You know, because, I mean, we, we've seen, haven't we, throughout, again, history, the experts have not always been right. I mean, you know, people used to say nobody could run a four-minute mile until Roger Bannister did. And now the world record, I think, is some Moroccan guy, you know, three minutes and 43 seconds. You know, Clarence Birdseye went broke trying to persuade people that frozen food didn't have to be bland and tasteful and mushy, you know, because he he had, you know, come up with this quick freeze methodology. And, and you know, someone like Fred Smith, who got a C on a paper outlining his business plan for Federal Express, was told by his professors, you know, that's a terrible idea. Well, you know, we know that events have proven all of those people, you know, all of those experts wrong. So that's another thing. It's really attitude, to be honest with you. And it's a way we think, Donna, and how much we are willing to embrace things that are different rather than necessarily fearing them or thinking that they're always going to be bad for us. Exactly. I mean, certainly for me, what comes up is that when, if you claim to be an expert, it basically is, is a sticking your stake into the ground saying, I can't learn anything else because there's this uh, ego attachment to what you know, what you think you know already. And, and we're not in a world where that's even a, a smart thing to do because things are moving so fast. So really, this journey that you've just described is, is about trusting in yourself, knowing you could deal with what shows up in the moment and also about learning from whatever happens, whether it's mistakes or breakthroughs or doesn't matter what it is, but, but you learn from what's emerging and it is a bold environment. It's a bold territory, but it's also very exciting. It is. It is. I mean, if, if you allow me to, I'd just like to sort of part with some advice to experts out there, you know, people that whose reputations or complete sense of being <laughs> is is wrapped up, you know what I mean, in 30 or 40 years of doing a certain thing a certain way. Uh, because, again, there's that kind of curse of knowledge or curse of expertise. I mean, I think there's huge dangers, particularly today to business, in being so certain that something can't be done or won't work. And I'd just like to share this this personal story with you uh, because my father uh, got polio, contracted polio when he was three years of age or actually I think he was 18 months. I learned later that he spent the first three years of his life in hospital because at that time the, these epidemics you know, left children pretty much crippled for life because the conventional treatment by physicians and the entire medical establishment I mean, it, it sounds so medieval and cruel now. You know, they would put these kids' legs into metal leg braces, they would strap them on boards, and they would keep them immobilized. You know, and in my father's case, the doctor was recommending to my grandmother amputating his leg. 
But my grandmother had heard about this wonderful woman called Sister Elizabeth Kenny. She was an Australian nurse, a pioneering nurse, that had this very unconventional approach. Now, she was stymied left, right, and center by the medical establishment, who poo-pooed her, her approach, said it was absolute nonsense, couldn't be done, even though there was evidence demonstrating that the kids that she was treating were, were able to get up and walk. You know, I mean, she was retraining their muscles with exercises and using hot compresses and all sorts of things. But again, the experts, very, very resistant because their entire reputation was based on this one way of doing things until a few courageous individuals in the medical, you know, in the medical establishment said, hey, maybe she's got a point here. And the point was that, thankfully, my grandmother, having heard about Sister Kenny's approach, said, hell no, you are not amputating my son's leg. She followed, you know, Sister Kenny's advice. And my dad went on to cycle, to dance, to run. I mean, you know, we, we, he always walked with a limp. And, you know, when you're children, you can be really cruel yourself. And remember my brother and I say, you know, but you can't run very fast. Wow, I have never seen a guy take off so fast in all my life. But you can imagine, can't you, what, how very different dad's life would have been if my grandmother hadn't heard about this pioneer, this woman on the fringe, this outsider who was going against what the medical establishment had always said needed to be done for these children with polio. So, you know, that's nothing necessarily to do with business. But I think it's a it's a sort of a dramatic example of how dangerous it is, not just for organizations, but for us as entire society or even the whole world to get so fixated on doing what we've always done the same way and not trying new things. It's a great example, Liz, because right now the biggest threat to business sustainability, particularly these large companies that are run by, by traditionalists or, or, you know, senior boomers, is that very fact. It's, it's, it's uh, senior execs that really don't think they can change at this point, don't want to learn anything new, and are, they're just holding out for their pensions. And these are, the, these are the ones that are putting their whole company at risk, as well as themselves and their legacy, but not, not, not consciously, obviously, not intentionally. Well, that brings us neatly back, actually, to, you know, one of your earliest questions about robotics, because one of the things I'm going to be doing uh, next month is speaking to a group of financial executives in uh, in New York about, you know, how the C-suite is at risk of automation, because they don't think they are, you see. They think that they, because they deal with exceptional cases and everything, that, you know, they're going to be free from this, you know, onslaught, if you like, of artificial intelligence and what have you and my answer to them is unless you become more human yourselves and unless you stop treating your employees like automatons and you know human robots then frankly we can automate you because a robot or a machine wouldn't treat them any wouldn't treat them any differently anyway you know and it, it's moving away from this con command and control uh, paradigm or this old methodology into more of the coordinate and cultivate you, you know moving away from that 
business's war analogy to thinking more about a gardening analogy and actually cultivating creativity and expertise in everybody, that's how they're going to save their jobs. Um, because otherwise, if they're going to be cold and inhuman and intractable, heck, machines are going to do what they can do anyway. That is absolutely brilliant, and I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> can you give us uh, where people go for more information on your site, Liz? Yes, absolutely. Well, I have two sites, uh, Donna. Um, I am co-founder of Leading Thought, and that is my consultancy where I work with organizations who are interested in, you know, discovering where the trends are going to lead them in their field and anticipate that and differentiate themselves. Um, and that's Leading Thought, L-E-A-D-I-N-G, T-H-O-U-G-H-T dot us dot com. You need to put the dot us in the middle, otherwise you won't reach us. Um, and then for the second uh, thing, it's drlizalexander.com is the work that I do with consultants and executives who are looking to write a thought-leading book and need me to help them find those fresh insights that make sure that their books are really different, really compelling, and will actually provide a service in the world. Thanks for being on the program, Liz. Great conversation. Thank you, Donna. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fominsighttoaction.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.